good to celebrate or observe communion with you. And uh, yeah, good now to look at God's Word with you. We're going to be, thank you, worship team, really appreciate it. Uh, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, if you want to turn there on your phone or in your Bible and look at it with me. Um, but first, I want to just do a brief review from last week. We were in chapter 1, only 10 verses, so we studied all 10 verses. And we broke it down into three categories, goal, problem, and solution. And the goal, as John states it, is to have fellowship with God, to have a relationship with God that comes through faith in Jesus alone. The problem is, is that as Christ followers, we mess up, we blow it, we sin. <laughs> and that does not change the state of our um, being in the family with God, being a child of God, but it does, it does affect our fellowship with God, our sense of closeness with God. So we're called into fellowship with God. Sin is our problem, but there is a solution. And John's so clear about this, it's beautiful, beautiful words, is that God consistently calls us back into the light. We want to conceal and hide in the darkness, but God calls us into the light, and all we need to do is confess our sins. And God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's chapter 1. Chapter 2 is very long. We're not going to take time to read the entire chapter. And what we're going to do is look at what many would consider to be a core passage in that chapter. Uh, but to understand that core passage, we need to, I think, understand the words that come just before it. And the words that come just before our core passage are these. I am writing to you who are God's children because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. I am writing to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning I am writing to you who are young in the faith because you have won your battle with the evil one. Same thing, a little bit different. I have written to you who are God's children because you know the Father. I have written to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I have written to you who are young in the faith because you are strong. God's word lives in your hearts and you have won your battle with the evil one. Now, it's interesting how John seems to say the same thing twice. But if you were to talk to my kids, especially when they're younger, Dad, you're repeating yourself. Yeah, it's that important. You've probably done the same thing. That's what John's doing here. I think he's repeating himself because it's so important. What is he saying? I think he's writing to the whole church. He's writing to all of us and saying, look, all of you as the church, you should have the, the innocent faith of a child. You should have the, the knowledge and the wisdom that comes with older people. You should have the, the, the vigor and the drive to do spiritual battle, just as a younger person have, might have that energy. But why would John share those words? It's because he's about to give a warning. He's about to give a caution, and that's the core passage we're about to look at. It's like he's saying, yes, you have the assurance of faith in Christ. You're in the family of God. Yes, you have the confidence in Christ to move forward through life, but be careful. Watch out. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And these are John's be careful words, the core passage we're going to look at. Just three verses we're going to study. Do not love this world nor the things it offers you, for when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers you 
only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave, but anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. Now, did you notice in this core passage one word that occurs over and over? It occurs five times. If you look at the original language of Greek, it actually occurs six times. It's the word cosmos. That's the Greek word for world. What is it about the world that John wants us to understand? That's what we're going to study. So we're going to look at verses 15 and then 16 and 17. Unpack those. And this is how verse 15 goes again. Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. Now, I read that, and I start to scratch my head and thinking, hmm, that seems inconsistent with things I've read other places in Scripture, but especially by John. As I said earlier, John wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Revelation. The Gospel of John, perhaps the most famous verse in all the Bible, is found in the Gospel of John. You know this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Well, that's interesting. God so loved the world. Well, as a Christian, I'm to take on the character of God, so that means I'm to love the world also. But what we just read in 1 John chapter 2 is, do not love the world. So which is it? Am I to love the world or not love the world? Hmm. Well, on one hand, world, cosmos, John talks about how God has created everything and how God's love flows toward his creation and all of the world and all of the people in the world that his love never stops flowing toward the world and toward the people in the world. So in that sense, I am to love the world and all the people in the world, every stripe and color. On the other hand, when John uses the word cosmos, world, which is actually more often used this way, he refers to a, a humanistic system that it seems to be opposed to God, that the world is made up of a belief system, a worldview, and values and behavior that are opposed to God's will for all of us. In a sense, the world reflects the very last verse in the book of Judges, which we looked at a couple weeks ago. The very last verse says, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. That's kind of reflective of the way the world is. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes, Forget what God has to say. The Bible's pretty clear. It says the, the entire world lies under the influence of the evil one, who is Satan. We'll talk about him in a moment. So in this sense, we are to not love the world. I am to love the world, but I am not to love the world. Jesus put it this way. We as Christ followers are to be in the world, but not of the world. Hmm. Maybe you've heard the term worldly. Maybe you've called somebody or judged at some one point, that person says they're a Christian, but they're kind of a worldly Christian. Or maybe you've judged yourself like that in the past or even now. I'm more of a worldly Christian. A worldly Christian is somebody who seeks to live in the light of Christ but chooses to sort of work in the darkness as well. A worldly Christian is someone who 
who says they love God, but it's pretty clear they love the world too. So, next, verse 16, John helps us to understand what characterizes this problem of loving the world. This is how the verse goes. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. A lot of words there. I want to simplify it. Years ago, I learned this verse in a different version. This, what we teach usually in the, in the room here is from the New Living Translation, but from the New International Version, these are the words I learned from this verse. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. See those three phrases, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I want to develop those a little bit so we understand them a little bit more, what John means by do not love the world. So the, the, the idea of the lust of the flesh, this is what it means essentially, preoccupation with satisfying and gratifying physical desires. Desires are good, but our desires can also get twisted. Um, it, it's, I love eating good food, but I can also eat too much of good food or even bad, or food that's bad for me. Sex is a good thing, but outside of marriage, marriage, there is a myriad of reasons it is not a good thing. Um, what would be some other examples? Hollywood. Hollywood is a good thing. There, my wife and I the other night watched a really good movie. Hollywood also can be a twisted thing. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes means a craving for an accumulation of things. It's okay to have things, to accumulate things, but it can get twisted, can't it? You know, I, I, we may like nice things, but when it leads us deeply, deeply into debt, it's a problem. Or my neighbors may have something very nice, but it's a problem when I step into envy and, and jealousy. I may want something, but it, why? Is it so that it will define me in a more favorable way? And then we come to the, the pride of life, obsession with one's own status, accomplishments, and importance. It's okay to be important in the community, to have accomplishments. Of course it is. But do I try to do well just so that I'm noticed? When I do things good, people may say, great, but does it evolve or devolve eventually into, look at me? Now these three, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life, should feel very familiar to you. They feel extremely familiar to me. Because all of my struggles, all of my temptations, all of my sins in my life fall into one of those categories. And that would be true for you as well. So, how does this happen? How does this work? This love of the world. How does it play out in our lives? And that's a bit of a complex thing because there are three factors involved. Some have called it the unholy trinity. Let me explain. You have us, you and I, are born with this. It's no easy way to say it, but the Apostle Paul, Scripture calls it our sinful nature. We, have a, we are born with a disposition against God. Sure, we 
we, we know some good things, we do good things, but there is a disposition against God, and we want to go our own way, do our own thing. That's one factor. Another factor is the world itself. I talked about it earlier. We live in a world where the values and behavior that are, that are applauded, sin is applauded, that's the kind of world we live in. Think of that sitting on a platter, all the things that now appeal to our sinful disposition, our nature. Now, you add to that nature, you add to the material or to, the, uh, uh, to, to, to the, um, what the world has to offer, we have this guy named Satan. Sometime we need to do more of a study on that spiritual warfare. But our enemy, Satan, the devil, call him what you want, and his dark army of minions, they seek our undoing. And typically the way they do it is they take that tray of worldly things and make it very appealing to our sinful nature. Those three working together. Now, is there any evidence of this in Scripture where this has happened, where we see this going on? Sure. Exhibit A, example Eve. Let's go back to the very beginning. <clears throat> Eve, of course, doesn't have a sinful nature, but she has a free will, and that's what the enemy takes advantage of. God tells Eve and Adam, "Do not. you can eat from all of the trees in the garden, but you cannot eat from the, the fruit, from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But the enemy comes along. And to Eve, he, he makes that fruit look so appealing. Oh, it tastes so good. Lust of the flesh. Oh, that fruit just looks so good. I want that lust of the eyes. Oh, this fruit will make you wise and smart like God. Oh, I got to have it. I want to be this pride, the pride of life. Now that's Eve. Fast forward, let's take Jesus as exhibit B. You know the story from Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. And at the very end, the enemy, Satan, the devil, comes to him to tempt him. Oh, he must be hungry. First temptation, oh, you can take all of these stones and turn them to bread. You must be hungry. Lust of the flesh. The devil shows them all of the, the kingdoms of the world. You could have all these under your control. Lust of the eyes. Takes them to the top of the temple and says, you could jump off and command all of the angels to come and rescue you and you would not hurt yourself one bit. Just think how cool that would be, the pride of life. Happens all the time. Now, of course, Jesus won, and we'll hear more about Jesus in just a few moments. But Eve and Adam, they lost. And ever since that time, that sinful nature has been a reality in our lives. Do you know, there is not a Christ follower in any corner of the globe at any point in history, who hasn't struggled with loving God and loving the world? That tension that Christ followers through. There's never been a, a, a Christ follower in any corner of the globe at any point in history who hasn't wrestled with worldliness. There, there isn't a Christ follower in any corner of the globe at any point in history who hasn't struggled with walking in the light but also wanting to walk in the darkness. That's our struggle too, with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. John 
gives us this warning. You know, you think about it, there's not much control I have over the enemy. I can't control it. God does. I don't. And there's no control that I have over the world and what it offers. It is what it is. This platter is full of things that appeal to my sinful nature. But I do have control over something. Uh, years ago, when, when I first became a, a Christ follower, this was at age 20, I remember reading for the Bible for the very first time. And you know where I read for the very first time in the Bible was 1 John. And I remember the, the words on the page just kept popping off. And, and making sense to me. And then I came to chapter 2, where we are now, in verse 6. And these are the words that I read. Anyone who says he or she is a Christian should live as Christ did. And I underlined it, and I started, and I bracketed, and I thought, that's important. I need to understand that. What does that mean? Another way of asking is, what did Jesus do? How did Jesus live his life? How would Jesus live my life if he were me? What would he do? And there are a lot of ways we can answer that question. Let me just give you a couple ideas. These are things under our control. You know, when Jesus was tempted, of course, he didn't have a sinful nature, <clears throat> which is even more impressive that the way he interacted with the devil at those temptations, he quoted Scripture to the enemy all three times. <clears throat> now, isn't that something? Without a sinful nature, he saw the need to know God's word. It was tucked deep down into his heart. This is why it's so important that you and I are in this room right now reading God's word. This is why it's so important through the week to, to dip into God's word, to allow it to become a part of your mind, a part of your heart, deep down into your soul, because that is something we can use to fight off this love for the world. That's what Jesus did, and we can do that too. Even without a sinful nature, he saw the need to pray. Many times in Scripture, Jesus would get up, sometimes early in the morning, and slip off to pray to the Father. Do you pray? Prayer is important. That's how John starts in first chapter. We are to pray. We are to talk to God. Bring our confessions to God so that we can rekindle the sense of fellowship with God. God's word and prayer. Just a couple simple things that we can do to keep ourselves from loving the world. Now there's, there's something else that I think was deep in Jesus' heart. What I want to show you is verse 17 from the passage we're looking at. These aren't, this is not a quotation from Jesus, but I think these words were deep, deep down into his soul. And this is how it goes. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave, John writes. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. Can we just take a look at that first sentence there? And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. This world is fading away. Let me turn that sentence into a principle. And the principle is this. We need to understand where history is headed. This world, not so much the physical world, but this world, the world that stands opposed to God with his values and behavior, will one day be gone. <clears throat> this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, will one day be gone. And what will remain are the pure desires that God originally intended us to have. 
And the smart and wise Christ follower understands that God is sovereignly in charge of history and we're moving toward a time when Jesus will come again. And there will be no more of this crazy COVID stuff. There will be no more of this crazy political contentiousness at all. There will be no more craziness in your own life, whatever that may be, or pain in your own life, because Jesus will be here and he will perfectly rule and reign on this earth. So, between this day and that day, we're called to not love the world. Now, that isn't easy, but it makes it easier knowing where history is headed. And then, and then the, the second sentence was, but anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. Can we turn that into a principle also? And it's this, pleasing God, not loving the world, pays off now and forever. Sometimes we read the word forever or eternity and we think, well, that's way off. That's beyond the grave. No, that's not true. Forever starts now. Don't we long for that sense of real life with God, that sense of fellowship with God, that sense of closeness with God? That's what your heart longs for. That's what we talked about last week. We long for that now. How do we get that now? Well, John tells us we are to please God. What does that mean, to please God? It's as simple and as hard as not loving the world. Just doing whatever we can to not give in to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. What does it mean to please God? It means learning to love God because he first loved us. It means learning to love his people all around us. That pleases God. It means learning to love his word. And when we do that, when we live that way, when we live to please God, now all of a sudden, that sense of fellowship we long for is ours. Not just forever, but now. And that's God's word, and that's good news. Let's pray together. God, thank you that uh, you, in your incredible grace and love, have reached into our lives and drawn us to yourself through Christ. We pray that you would give us hearts to follow hard after you, to resist loving the world, to figure out in our own lives how we can please you, that we would not dabble with trying to live in the world for the world, be of the world and love you too. Help us to be single-minded followers of Christ because that is where real joy and meaningfulness comes from. In Christ's name we pray, amen.